Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. I'm glad to be here as we continue our study on the book of Matthew. This is week three, so if you've missed any of them, you can go back and catch up online anytime, but uh, we are only on chapter two. And so I think, and I hope you think it's satisfying to kind of work your way through an entire book of the buddy, walk through it, study it. So remember, even if you miss a Sunday, you can catch up online. It all kind of goes together because it's, it's one overarching book. And here's what we've learned so far, just so we're on the same page. First off, we've learned that Matthew is very intentional with the purpose of his writing this biography of the life of Jesus. From the very beginning, we see him present Jesus as, as the king, the Messiah, who's fulfilling the uh, covenant made to Abraham. He's fulfilling the covenant made to David, meaning uh, this Jesus has been told for a long time through the, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament as we call it. Like Jesus, this Messiah, has been prophesied, and that's who this person is. And we learn from Jesus' family tree that our families can be a mess, right? Like our families don't have to be perfect. God can still use that. His faithfulness continues even if our family's a little bit messy, Last week, we saw that God is a God of change, right? When he moves, things change. He shakes things up and calls you and me, we, to step out on faith to fulfill what he's asked us to do, whatever those purposes and plans may be, right? And we learned that if if you're righteous, if you're mature, if you've been to church for a long time, we understand then that means we don't get off to just be comfortable, right? Comfort is what heaven's for. That's not what this earth is for. We won't find it here. We shouldn't try to build it here. We need to be busy about the work of Jesus Christ while we are on this earth. And now Matthew, to be clear, is going to continue to push his agenda. He's going to continue to push the purpose of his writings. Because if you didn't know, I'm glad you're here this morning, anybody who writes anything always has a purpose for their writing. Remember, the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. It didn't just come to us collected like this. God used human authors to put this together. In the book of Matthew, he is very clear about his purpose and why he is writing this. And the thing he wants us to make sure from the very beginning, and folks, this theme will appear over and over and over and over again in the book of Matthew. Right up front, he wants us to know this thing about Jesus. He is the king. Jesus is the king. We have to settle that. We have to understand that. We have to learn or or just digest that that's what this gospel is telling us. That's what it's yelling at us, that Jesus is the king. And the proper response to this king is worship. It is you and me to worship the king. The story we're going to work through this morning is as popular as any story may be in the Bible. And what happens with very popular stories in the Bible, they get really cute, they get really snuggly, we put them on cards, and we miss the point. That's what happens with the popularity of something. We kind of sanitize it, and this story has been sanitized. 
You see, the story isn't about three wise men or three kings to come find a king. The story's about two kings and about three choices we see people make. This is a political story about the kingdom of God coming into the kingdom of this earth. And we see the clash and the collision. And like any good story does, it calls for me and you to respond to this politically charged message about Jesus being the one in charge. We're going to see three different responses. We're going to see King Herod, his response. He's supposed to be the king of God's people. We see the religious people's response who were waiting on the Messiah and knew he was supposed to come. And then we're going to get to see the Gentile pagan magician response and what they chose to do. And we see that this unlikely response or the unlikely people respond correctly. Let's just jump into the story. Matthew 2, chapter 1. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why they have to do this, but Luke does. Mary and Joseph had to uh, travel to Bethlehem for a census that Caesar Augustus said. Caesar said, hey, remember, Rome's in charge right now. This isn't just a biblical story. I think sometimes we forget that the Bible is real history. So this is real history in real time. Caesar said, hey, everyone has to go. We're doing a census. We need a count of everybody. So Mary and Joseph had to leave their hometown and go to Bethlehem. You see, Jesus was born during what's called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, like a real-time period in history. Those of you history buffs, you know. Those of you who aren't, you should know this. It's important. Jesus was born during this time that Rome had kind of conquered almost everything in their world, and there was just peace now. There was this calmness. That peace lasted for about 200 years, from 27 AD to about 100, excuse me, 27 BC to 180 AD. Jesus was born around 6, six to 4 B.C. So Joseph and Mary, in real time, in real history, in real life, had to travel because of Caesar's order and go from Nazarene in Galilee and go to Bethlehem for this census. During that time, as it says, Jesus was born, right? We miss all the cute stuff that Luke tells us. Jesus is born there, and they decide to raise their child in Bethlehem for a couple of years. And this happened during this guy, King Herod. He's a real person in real history, and you can learn all about him, not only from the Bible, but from outside sources as well. Now, Herod is called Herod the Great, and history tells us he was a ruthless king, and, but we have a time stamp on when this happened because he ruled from 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C., Rome put him in charge as king of the Jews, although he wasn't in charge yet and he wasn't fully Jewish, but he went as a great military leader, took over Jerusalem and became king. And history tells us that although he wasn't fully Jewish, he still wanted to be identified as the rightful king. So he would make claims about how his line was in line with the king, uh, excuse me, King David and Solomon. He's the legitimate king. He started massive building programs and economic development because, of course, that's what Solomon did. There was a lot of prosperity. And so he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He rebuilt Samaria. And here's the point. For all practical purposes as a king, people would have loved his reign. There was peace. 
People were making money. Things were getting built. And what I've learned from my very short time on this planet is that people will put up with a lot from their leader if their pockets are getting a little fatter, won't they? People are making money. They're like, this guy's all right. We're making money. Interest is up. We're good. We're building things. It's all right. But both biblical and historical documents tell us he was a very paranoid man. He constantly worried about losing his powers. He had two of his sons strangled because he thought they were going to cause a mutiny. He ruled like Rome did, which is common for 2,000 years ago. If you step out of line, you die. Like that was it. Step out of line, you die. It was very simple. But Rome enjoyed Herod being in charge because there was peace. The Jewish people liked Herod being in charge because there was peace. People were making money. It seemed to be okay, but then Jesus is born. Second part of verse 1. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So these wise men or magi or magicians show up to Jerusalem, ask the king, they say, hey, where's the actual king, the new king that's been born? And let's not sanitize this story. These are people who studied astronomy, interpreted dreams, and magic. Like, here's the deal. For all biblical purposes, these are not the people who's supposed to know that God is up to something. The things they were into is outlawed in the, in the Jewish scriptures. They're not supposed to be doing any of this stuff. But evidently, the people who are doing the dark arts, the stuff that's forbidden, are paying attention to God moving and God doing something. And I have far more questions about this whole situation than I have answers. First, we have no idea how many mad magicians or magi or wise men there were. The, uh, a song that everybody loves says three. We don't know. It could have been 30. We have no idea. We don't know where they came from, though plenty of people speculate. If you're one of those, that's great. Keep going. But chances are, all we know is they traveled from some long distance away. They're magicians, wizards, sorcerers, think Harry Potter, stuff like that. Come and ask the king of the Jews, where's the new king of the Jews? Where's this new guy? And what is God doing here? Why are the people who's supposed to be waiting on him oblivious, but the people who aren't anywhere near him supposedly are aware of it? But I think that's the point of this story, that God is moving and it's up to who is paying attention to what's going on gets to experience it, gets the blessings from it. And so their question right here makes it very clear. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? You see, Herod was made king after he conquered, but this king is born a king. No one has to make it. He's already the king just by his birth. A king is born. Now, when you think of Jesus being a king, how does that make you feel? Well, as Americans already know, we don't like kings very much, do we? From the very beginning of our country, we decided no kings for us. No one's going to have all authority. No one's going to have all power. We don't like that kind of stuff. And if that's you, I get it. I'm an American too, but that's where we have to wrestle with this claim from Jesus. 
from Jesus' followers that he is king, that it is his rule. He is the one reigning, and he is in charge. You see, Jesus doesn't ask to be your king. Jesus didn't become king. Jesus was born the king. There's a big difference, and that's the claim Matthew is making here. Verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he had heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And we need to pay attention to that. Not only was the king upset, but everyone else in Jerusalem. So evidently, word got out, a bunch of wizards show up. That's what I'm picturing. A bunch of wizards show up, long hats, beard, all that stuff. Show up and say, hey, there's a new king. We want to know where he's at. Evidently, it made such a ruckus that everyone knew about it. I cannot stress this enough. Not just the king is upset, but everyone in Jerusalem. Not probably not everyone, but evidently everybody in the know. They were like, man, there's this new king. This is disturbing. Why? Because it's going to wreak havoc on our plans. We live in peace. We're making money. I'm getting good interest. Things are going great. I'm starting new businesses. Life is good. Y'all ever felt like that before? All right, that's what they're in. Everyone's upset. He called a meeting of the priest, that's the king, and teaches the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? You see, Herod's disturbed because his power is about to be messed with. And if his power's messed with, Rome's going to get upset. And what happens when Rome gets upset? We talked about this. You die. That's it. No second chances, you're dead. And the Messiah, so he says, hey, this king's been bored. He's looking for the Messiah. They're looking for a political savior. They're looking for a military savior. And right now in their world, it's Roman peace. Things are going good. We don't need a savior. We don't need helping. Everything's okay. But isn't that how you feel all the time? I don't need saving. I'm okay. Things are going good. Life's all right. But Jesus shows up. He says, nope. Something else is going on. So he calls the priest. He says, listen, where's, if a new king's been born, where's the Messiah supposed to be at? And he tells him, verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come for you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So they quote back Micah 5.2, Samuel 5.2. They say, we know where the king is going to be. Evidently, these were the, the verses that they started working through about the prophecies of the Messiah. And we say, we got it. We know where it's at. We have this stuff figured out. He's going to be over there in Bethlehem. That's where it's going to happen. So Herod knew what to do next, verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. So, so far for the wise men, everything looked great. They show up, tell the king, hey, a new king's been born. New king's like, yeah, no problem. It's in Bethlehem. They're like, great, we're going to go worship. We'll bring him back. Everything works out perfectly. But spoiler alert, and listen, I don't feel bad for ruining this story for you. It's been around for 2,000 years. You should have read it by now, okay? Spoiler alert, Herod doesn't want to worship the baby. What does Herod want to do? He wants to kill the baby. Now check this out, follow this. Herod knows and he tells them the proper response is to worship this king being born. 
So Herod's like, hey, I know the right thing is to worship this king. He knows that. Herod believes enough about the prophecies. He believes enough in the truth of scripture that when he hears this idea of a new king, he calls the scholars in to say, hey, where's this supposed to happen? So he believed in the Bible enough to know that it could predict things. He believed in the Bible enough to know it would be accurate about even where to go. So he thought that God was doing something and God foretold them about this thing happening. And yet Herod thought he could stop it. I mean, that's crazy. You believe in the Bible enough to know it could come true. Believe in the Bible enough to know that the prophecies are accurate. Believe in the Bible enough to reorient people and your soldiers around an area. But yet still not want to follow it and try to stop it. Something's missing there. But you see, if God is moving, if God is doing something, we do not want to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. But Herod chose to fight against God. And there are times, and we need to think about this, where we need to pause, pray, and seek him. Not have these jerk reactions. I've never had a jerk reaction, by the way. Other people have. I've never responded in that manner. I always think clearly and articulate properly. Just don't ask anybody about that. I might be lying. Yeah, but there are some times in our lives we don't just need to move. We need to pause. We need to pray. We need to say, God, is, if this is you, I probably shouldn't try to kill you. Like, it's probably a bad idea. L- let me think about this. So he told the wise men where to go. Verse 9. It says, so my, oh, nope, next slide. It says, after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. They went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. So they're still following the star. It appeared and reappeared, whatever was going on. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So they've been traveling. Some estimate thousands of miles. Some estimate for years. We're not really sure. But what we do know is when it stops, when it's over the destination, they're filled with joy. You see, that's what Jesus brings. And some of you have had a very difficult life. You're on a very difficult journey. I can assure you, and I want you to know that Jesus Christ can bring you joy. That's what he's in the business of doing. And look at their response, verse 11. It says, they entered the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Pagan magicians, folks. Gandalf is bowing down and worshiping the king. They open their treasure chest. I love that. How many of y'all have treasure chests? I want one now just because of this. It'd be cool to just open a treasure chest up, start paying people out of it. I don't know. They opened their treasure chest and gave him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, this is, and Matthew is very clear, because this story would have bothered every Jewish person who read it. Their story is very clear. The proper response to a king is worship. The proper response to this Jesus is bowing down, face on the ground, worshiping him, getting out your treasure chest. I want one so bad now. Getting out your treasure chest, opening it up, and pouring it at the feet of Jesus. Worship is offering yourself to the king. 
It's acknowledging he's above you, he's better than you, he's more valuable than you, and then giving to him what is important to you. That's what you do when someone's greater, when someone's better. This, this whole system, this is the king, we give it to him. We sacrifice to him. And you do this all the time. If you plan a special date with your loved one, what are you sacrificing? You're sacrificing time. You're sacrificing money. You're sacrificing the gift or whatever else that looks like for, for that special one. When you have kids, you sacrifice for them all the time. They don't know it, but you are. You give up everything you ever wanted for them, all right? That's what you do. And when it comes to God, we worship, we acknowledge who he is in light of who we are. And the proper response to a God is worship. It's giving what is valuable and laying at his feet. These men paid homage to Jesus. They recognized he was superior and humbled themselves before him. They traveled and then they humbled and they gave and then they obeyed. Look at the next verse, verse 12. And when it came time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. You see, when you meet Jesus, you don't leave the same way you came. He sends you on a new direction with a new purpose. No longer serving the other kings. No longer serving Herod. No longer serving your job or football or your kids' sports. You now follow his leading because he is worthy. Verse 13 says, After the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. God used the generosity of the pagans to fund the trip of safety for the new baby king because his own people wanted to kill him. That's not a great Christmas story, is it, folks? In their life, Mary and Joseph was shaken up once again. They did what the angel said. They went to Egypt for a time. And then Herod came in and killed all the boys who were two years and younger. They're estimating probably about 20 babies he would have killed. And the event is called Killing of the Innocent. But Herod did all sorts of crazy stuff, folks. You can read it about for yourself in history books. This was normal for him. But Joseph and Mary, they hung out in Egypt. They were in safety and foreigners. They were refugees in a different place in a different time until God, till Herod died and he told them to go back and they went back to Nazareth. But this story, this story should be the furthest thing from anything happy that we put on a Christmas card. It's a story of kingdoms colliding. It's a story of God's people rejecting him. It's a story of babies being murdered and the hero of the story are pagan, uh, pagan magicians who should have been the furthest away from God. And the question is, for us, as we think about Jesus being king, is who's on your throne? Who is the king of your life? Because look at these three responses we see from the people. First, we see apathy. 
You and me, we can choose to be apathetic if we want in our faith. Because when we saw the wise men show up, did you notice none of the Jewish people, none of the religious leaders, none of the people who were supposed to be waiting on Jesus were there with them? They say, we know a lot about the Bible. You want to know about the Bible? Come to us. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Bethlehem down there? You want to come? Nope. I got things to do. I'm busy. I got a worship service in like 30 minutes. I can't go meet Jesus. I got stuff I got to take care of. They just point them to the town. Listen, these are the religious leaders, the ones who are waiting on the Messiah to come. They know where he's supposed to be, and they don't go meet him. They keep all the religious parts of their faith. They keep all the traditions of their faith. But when it comes to matters of meeting Jesus, they completely miss out. And the question is why? Why didn't they get their stuff together and go with the wise men? Why didn't they see if perhaps this really was him? Why didn't anybody else in the town take this serious? Well, maybe they were burnt out. Maybe they were busy. Maybe football was on, the game was on. Maybe travel sports were in full swing. They were like, look, my kid has a game. Yes, it's fall. I'm back to picking on travel sports. Every fall I will do that, just for clarity. Maybe they had budgets to balance. Maybe they were working on bylaws. Maybe they just didn't care. They were apathetic and indifferent to the most life-changing news the world has ever heard. The king, the Messiah, has come. And evidently, they wanted God enough to be interested in his things, but not enough to change their lives. Folks, that's not an option when you meet God. This apathy that, mm, I'll fit it in if I have time. If I don't have time, I'll find something else to do. Boy, my schedule's busy. Let me introduce you to King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You make time for this king. And this is so important, especially if you grew up in church or you've been in Christianity your entire life. The religious people of the day miss Jesus. The people who kept the traditions missed Jesus. And I'm not making this up. You can read the gospel on your own. The people who were supposed to be waiting on Jesus, the people who knew the Bible, the Sunday school teachers, the deacons, whoever else, the preachers, all of them, they missed Jesus. They were so wrapped up with themselves. They were so wrapped up with their way. And this needs to hit us hard because they were supposed to be awaiting the Messiah to come. Folks, as a church, as Christians, we are supposed to be waiting for the Messiah to come back. And we can be just as complacent. We can get just as busy. We can act like, mm, not a big deal. I've heard those prophecy people in the past. They always say he's coming back, but he never does. We can be so apathetic and get so busy that we miss out on God moving in our midst. But the great thing about apathy, do you know what's required if you're apathetic, if you're indifferent, if you're like, ah, it's not that big of a deal? Do you know what is required for that, to get out of that rut? Change. It's not complicated. Change your life up. Start doing things differently. I invite you to start getting involved at church. 
Start getting involved in the things God is doing at the church. Start seeing people come to know Jesus. Start doing things that help people have their life. You know, this, this whole idea of being born again, going from the, the darkest places of hell to whatever heaven looks like in eternal life. Like, be involved in helping people do that kind of stuff. Like, once you get hooked on that, there's no going back. Helping people find life, an abundant life in Jesus Christ. Like, why not join the efforts of what the locust church is doing? Why not volunteer your time? Simple things like trunk or treat or get involved in a Sunday school class. I know it's weird getting involved with other people and people are weird. I know that. You're weird too. It's okay. We're just a bunch of weird people sitting together trying to figure out life. It's all right. If you're like, I already go to Sunday school, go to a new one. Maybe it's time for yours to break up. Maybe your Sunday school class has been together so long, you just need to break up and go to another group and start finding new people to love on. Like, it's okay, whatever you need to do, if you're an apathetic, if you're in a rut, you need to start changing things up a little bit. Start volunteering, start meeting new people. In fact, start inviting people to church. If you invite people to church, that means you actually have to come, number one. It's an uncomfortable laugh, isn't it? I know. That means you actually have to come. You should prioritize that. We'll get to that in a minute. But you should, hey, come sit with me. And there is nothing better for an apathetic Christian, someone who's like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. There's nothing better than you inviting new people. Because then you start looking at things through new people's eyes. And I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I used to invite people to church. Every time I showed up, you talk about money. Every time. Every time I'd show up, I'm like, oh, here we go again, talking about money. Just happened. But it wouldn't have bothered me. I don't mind him talking about money. I'm fine with that. But I started looking at it through this new person's eyes. Like sometimes we get so ingrained in what we've always done, we don't pay attention to what other people see. So start inviting new people. You see, Jessica, my wife, she didn't grow up in church. And I remember her taking, taking her to my church that I first was going to when we first started dating. And I remember her just looking around going, what is going on? It was like being transported back to 1950. No joke. I was used to it. It didn't bother me. And I quickly realized, I said, huh, she's either going to have to fall in love with a new time period. (laughs) Come on, let's be honest. Or the church is going to have to change. What do you think happened? Neither. We went to a new church. (laughs) Because that's an option too. We're like, this ain't going to work out. Because I wanted her to fall in love with Jesus, not, be a, not, not around a bunch of apathetic Christians. Because Jesus changes lives, folks. He's changed mine. I know he's changed most of yours. But it needs to hit us that as Jesus followers, we are waiting on Jesus to return. And we need to be about his business and expect him to move and expect him to be doing things down the street and expect us to get involved in it to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So we could be apathetic, or we could be hostile to the things of God. That's what Herod did. He wanted to kill Jesus, kill the baby. He thought he could do it. He wanted to hold on to his power. He wanted to hold on to his throne, and he did not want Jesus messing with his plans. He had his little kingdom, and no one needs to mess with it. But you see, Herod considered himself a Jew, He converted to Judaism. But when God started moving, he rejected him. Come on. It's easy to be a Christian until God asks you to do something, isn't it? It's easy to be a Jesus follower until he tells you to get out of the way. And Herod said, well, 
I'll just kill him. Because Herod thought, Herod thought Jesus had come to take his throne. Jesus didn't want what Herod had. Jesus wanted to give Herod life. And that's the thing about Jesus. We get so caught up thinking Jesus wants to take things, but Jesus wants to give us things. Herod said, no, you can't have my power. Jesus said, I want your puny throne. I'm the king of the cosmos. I don't need that. He wanted to give something to Herod. Every time we give to Jesus, he gives back more than we could ever imagine. We find out it wasn't a sacrifice after all. It's Jesus. It's the king. He says, come to me. I got you. But Herod tried to hold on to the throne and then missed out on abundant life in Jesus Christ. So we can be apathetic to him being the king. We can be hostile or we can worship. We can do what the pagan magicians do. We can bow down before our king. We can surrender our lives and our treasure chest. I'm buying a treasure chest. I'm telling you, I need to get one. We got to surrender our treasure chest to Jesus. You see, worship, biblical worship, this is important, especially if you've been in church for a long time. Worship is the reorientation of your life around Jesus. Somewhere along the way in church, we started thinking worship was music. Worship may include music, but worship is not just about singing. And it's very important. There's a word in the Bible, and it's translated for us, you know, from Greek or Hebrew, and it translates into, well, the idea of singing in the Bible is simply singing. That's not worship. It can be part of it, but singing is singing. It's not the same. Worship is far more than singing. The goal of our weekly worship services is to help you reorient your life around Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Because the problem is, you worship, I worship, and we reorient our lives around all the wrong things all week. Your job, sports, Football, schools, boyfriends, girlfriends. We change our entire lives. We reorient our lives. We worship these other things that end up leaving us empty and sad. And we know something's wrong. And so we come to church. We come and gather together to worship, to reorient our lives around Jesus because he is worthy and remind us he is on the throne. He is number one. And for far too long, our country, our society, we, we, we prioritize church, which means you didn't have to. There was nothing competing for your attention. It was super easy. I hear about it all the time. I wasn't around during this time period, by the way, but I hear about it all the time, that everything was closed on Sundays and Wednesday nights. And so what I hear from that, whether you know you're telling me this or not, what I'm hearing is you're like, so we were bored and there was nothing else to do. So we went to church. We were bored. Nothing else was open, so I had to go to church. That's where my friends were. Wednesday nights, we were bored, so we went to church. How do I know that's true? Because once things get busy, once society changes, we say, wow, I wish it was like it used to be. Why? Now you have to choose. Now you have to prioritize. 
Oh, now you have to worship. And that's different. We don't have to wish that society still looked at Sunday as this this sacred day. Folks, it can still be a sacred day to you. You can prioritize it. You can say it's a non-negotiable. You can say this is what I'm going to do. Like it's still possible. That's worship. It's reorienting your lives around the king. Sing what you want. But it's taking my life and saying it's not my life. I mean, the Apostle Paul helps us with this. I'm so thankful for this. Romans 12.1, if you don't have it memorized, that's your verse for the week. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. That is biblical worship. A reorientation of your life saying it's not about me. It's about him. He is the one worthy. He is the king. And folks, this is what the gospel summons us towards. Jesus being king, King Jesus is a summons to kneel before, to bow before the one who is truly worthy, the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to deliver his people in ways no one saw coming. Nobody knew what was coming next. The death of the king, no one knew that was coming, but God did. And he sent them for us. And so my question for you is, have you given your allegiance, have you surrendered your life to King Jesus? That is the only proper response when you understand who Jesus is claiming to be and who the writers of the Bible said he was. He is king, meaning he is in charge. Nobody else is. You see, The king missed it. The religious people missed it. But the pagan magicians got it right. So that gives you and me hope, doesn't it, folks? We can get it right. And it's surrendering and bowing before King Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come today and are reminded of who should be on the throne of our heart. Father, you sent Jesus to be our king, the one who is in charge, the one we surrender to. Father, we know your great love for us. You displayed it on the cross. We know that there's nothing we can do to earn your favor and grace. You freely give it to us. So, Father, we know that we owe you everything because you've given us everything. So out of our great love for you, out of our understanding that we can't do anything for you, out of all of that, let us serve you with everything we are. Father, help us dedicate our time, our talents, and our treasures to the king. Help us open our treasure chests and dump them at the feet of Jesus. Because you are worthy. You are God, our Savior and Redeemer. So, Father, help us prioritize. Help us remove those things from the throne of our hearts and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.